Follow the things that make you forget about money. We're not here to just work and die. Like that's just not the point of our purpose on this earth. Welcome back, Dream Nation. And if you're brand new here, we put out episodes every single week to help you learn the skill set and the mindset to create your dream life. And in this episode, I sat down with the lovely Sarah Davidson. Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? I didn't even think about that because I was like, well, I'm successful, so who cares? She's a former lawyer turned fundpreneur who was the first person to bring matcha tea powder over to Australia and absolutely freaking killed it. What is matcha? Why is it great? Why is ours better than everyone else's? And why you should buy ours? People knew what it was. The Kardashians were drinking it. There were a million matcha ambassadors out there, but there was no... We go really deep into her entrepreneurial journey and her identity shift from going from a corporate lawyer to an entrepreneur and having to work for herself. 10 years into becoming this lawyer and I'm doing really well at that as well. It wasn't like I hated it or it wasn't going well. I had... She talks about how to make your product and brand stand out and cut through the noise, even against some of the biggest competitors in the market. We had a beautiful year of a head start and then suddenly the market was flooded. Everyone caught up with the idea that Matcha was going really well. Everyone from your Blackmores and T2 bringing out their own equivalent and then other small startups replicating kind of what we've done. And she also opens up a lot about her personal development journey and how she almost lost herself in the process of business and life and gives some super valuable tools to make sure that you don't do the same. When we tried to be everyone else, we lost vision. It takes a lot of- And talks all things about how we find true happiness and true fulfillment in the midst of life and business. I'm seeing happiness without success and happiness without money. You can change everything about how you value what you do just from- Is this a jam-packed episode and you get so much value from it? So if you're coming back, welcome. And if you're brand new here, welcome to the Dream Out Loud podcast. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome to the Dream Out Loud family, where young entrepreneurs come to learn the tips, tricks, and attitude of what it takes to live their dream life. I'm your host, Morgan T. Nelson, a former carpenter who created financial freedom by the age of 23 and have since spent my time traveling around the world living my dream life, inspiring, educating, and teaching other young people how they can do the same. Each and every week, I'll bring you the most epic guests who are going to share their stories, wisdom, tips and tricks on how they've been able to create a life by design. Here at Dream Out Loud, we're committed to helping inspire and educate you to be able to execute your full potential. Alrighty guys, today's guest is a former lawyer turned funpreneur who co-founded a company called Matcha Maiden. She's a best-selling author and is the podcast host of Seize the Yay. She's incredibly passionate about helping other people create success in all areas of their life, not just financially. So please help me and welcome the woman, Miss Sarah Davison. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. I'm super excited to have a conversation with you. Um, I Obviously, I've seen your stuff from a distance and then every time I bring a new guest on the show i do my research and then every like new page i looked into i just got more and more exciting of seeing the things you've done um and how you think and everything you stand for so i'm very excited to have a chat with you oh that's very kind i'm so excited to be here i think we have quite a few mutual friends actually who were like oh you you and morgan like did you did just have a chat so i'm glad we made it happen thank you for having me yeah <laughs> amazing so I want to kick it off by asking, so in your journey, you've, you've built, you've built an incredible successful company. 
Um, you guys then exited and we're just talking about how you and your husband both are just serial entrepreneurs. You can't sit still. In the journey of you building businesses, you realized at some point that money doesn't equal happiness. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what happened for you, for you to learn that? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it was actually probably before. So my husband has always been a serial entrepreneur and he's never had the kind of traditional, conventional metrics of a career. So it was an easier transition for him. But for me, I started in a completely different world that was very structured, very certainty-based, like your income was very fixed and it was clear at each year of your life what you would be earning and what the title meant and the prestige, like the hierarchy was so so obvious and so set out. So I think I, I started off in a world where financial success and that sense of climbing a ladder was very pervasive. And it's not that money was everything, but it was just very conscious that with a promotion came a pay rise. And you were looking at sort of all the different people in your cohort and who was earning more. And success was just measured in a very numerical way. And that rubs off on you when you're in an environment like that. It's not that it was the only thing that I thought mattered, but it was just something that I had learnt was how I would value where I was. And it wasn't until, I don't actually think I was one of those corporate refugees who left because I hated it. I think a lot of people leave because they find the hours oppressive or it makes them really unhappy. I actually really, if I'm honest and look back at that time, I really got off on that sense of prestige and financial success and everyone thinking that you were really successful no matter what you did. Like, I actually kind of thought I was coasting. I'd trained for 10 years to do that job. Like, I, you know, there was a strong learning curve at the start. But then after that, you're a first year, you're a second year, you're a third year. You don't have to do much to kind of progress. You know, you have to do your job, but you don't have to hustle all the time. So it wasn't until I, um, by very happy accident, ended up getting quite unwell, being banned from coffee, discovering matcha powder and starting the business with my husband as a side hustle that business looks, and I'm sure you understand this yourself and have experienced that often when your business looks like it's doing the best, your cash flow is the worst or the money that you as an individual are taking as a wage is nothing or very minimal for a really long time. So starting the business and going full-time involved a very big pay cut and kind of stripped back all the things that I thought had mattered before. And that's when it really, it was only once I moved out of a world that was very numbers-based and all the work I did, I was in merchants and acquisitions. So I was on deals all the time where figures were in the millions and everything was figures-based. Moving into a world where suddenly, yes, your revenue is really important. Yes, the numbers are really important, but your success was measured in a different way. It was measured more on community and your like joy each day and how fulfilled you feel. Like fulfillment was not a word I ever allowed myself to think about, to ask. Like, am I happy? Am I fulfilled? I didn't even think about that because I was like, well, I'm successful. So who cares? Wasn't even a question. So I think it was a combination of having kind of financial metrics stripped away for a little while while I was earning nothing and still being much more fulfilled by my job. And I sort of thought, well, that's weird because I'm not earning anything. So how does that work? And also it was the fact that the way I got sick was on a charitable expedition to Rwanda of all places. And I sort of, for the first time, saw people who didn't have what I considered to be success. So metrics like the internet, 
job titles, the same prospects that we had back home. And yet there were a lot, they had an unburdened happiness that I didn't see in anyone back home. We were so anxious to get to the next level that joy kind of was beside the point. Whereas these communities had very little and could feel joy so openly. They'd break into song and play for play with a leaf for 12 hours and be so un, like just joyful about what they what they did have. So all of this was happening around the same time and I sort of was like, I'm seeing happiness without success and happiness without things and without money and without progress and productivity and maybe they're not the same thing. And more and more as I started to change my priorities from success for success's sake and money to am I fulfilled and am I doing, am I delivering to the world the best combination of what I'm good at and what I'm passionate about? And then everything else started to fall into place. Like the money came back, the weight we grew big enough to take a wage. And it's just funny how you can change everything about how you value what you do just from one experience. Yeah, I, I have heard somewhere lately, I forget who said it, it was maybe either Andrew Huberman or Sadia Khan. And they were talking about happiness and this, this thing of happiness. Because if you've ever traveled to Fiji or Bali, in my opinion, those two cultures are the happiest people I've ever met in the world. Mm. I've they're, they're just ridiculously happy. And one of them was saying that unhappiness actually comes from more options, more yes. choices. So the more things that we can be in a world where we're seeing like, well, I can have this and be do that. And did the, it creates a, a, a thing in our mind, I, I guess, comparison or, or an easier for us to actually you know, put people on pedestals or put objects or things on pedestals and perceive that we're doing less than or or whatever. But then you say you look into their culture where they're just happy and they're living in their in their their tribe and they're having fun and they have their meaning and purpose. And there's not as much, I guess, choice in a way makes more happiness. Have you found anything like that? Or do you agree? I'm I'm very curious on this topic. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting way to look at it. And I definitely think that applies in the case of in the case of places like Thailand and, and areas where people might have less objectively or less kind of financially valuable things, that having less choice, I think you do, you get really overwhelmed by choice and that that can take a lot of the joy out of things. Sometimes I think, I think sometimes that doesn't apply in that sometimes it's the lack, the feeling like you don't have any control or you don't have any other options that makes you feel disempowered and that makes some people in their careers feel like I'm stuck. I think feeling stuck is a great cause of, and and feeling like you have no options kind of at the total other end of the spectrum is also a feeling that causes a lot of unhappiness for people because they don't feel like they're in control of their pathway. And I think people are way too quick to make that assumption. I think we silo ourselves very early in life and think I'm either an extrovert or an introvert. I'm either arty and creative or I'm numbers based or I'm you know, you think you're one thing and you label yourself very early and then you automatically take away a lot of choice from yourself and away a lot of options. Even the way we think about careers when you graduate school, you kind of think there's seven jobs and there's no gray areas and there's nothing else you could possibly ever do, taking away a lot of choice. And I think as much as you would be too overwhelmed if you had too many choices, I think you'd also be too overwhelmed if you'd taken away those choices from yourself. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think I personally, looking back on sort of my journey with 
call it happiness or fulfillment or whatever. I actually don't think I had, I'd, choice was actually part of it, interestingly, when I look back. People are like, do you regret leaving a career that you invested so much of your time and life and money and studying and hex debts and whatever? Do you regret choosing that and then walking away? And I actually think about it. I'm like, I don't think I chose. I actually think I fell into it. And I think a lot of people fall into their life because you just don't even make a conscious choice. You just sort of think, that's what I should do. I graduated with a good score and sort of six jobs were presented to me and I didn't like blood and I didn't think I was sciencey. So I just chose law because it opened more doors than closed them. And then I started my degree and then everyone else was applying for the same firm. So I kind of just did that because, and I think that's where we get, we lose track of happiness, not being the only criteria for your life, but one of the criteria. And you start to just get on this hamster wheel of like, well, this is what's next because this is what everyone does. Like, I don't, doesn't matter if it suits you. It doesn't matter if you're good at it or you want to do it. I don't think we ask ourselves that. I just went, oh, I should apply because everyone else is. And then suddenly you're in this career and you're like, did I choose to get here or did I just end up here? And it's it's interesting how much sometimes people spend their entire lives in a life that they never actually made a conscious choice about. And what makes me really excited is reminding people at any time you can change your mind. You can make different decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Like what you're describing is like 95 to 99% of people, they they go through the cycle of life they and they do everything that they should do. I was, I was, I've had Dr. John Martini on the show a few times <gasps> and I was talking to all things with him about it. And, and he explains that as he's like, any time in your life where you're using language, like I should do that or I should do that. Mm. I should do this or I should do that. And you say, well, why? Because, well, you know, I'm smart or I should say that because it's my family or dad did that or whatever. We're living a life according to someone else's values, which will ultimately lead to a life that's unfulfilled and not purposeful at all. Mm. And what you just talked about is there's this thing called the cost-loss fallacy. And this keeps most people in relationships that they know they need to leave, jobs they need, they're not fulfilled in, businesses. And what it is is, if we take, so let's say you're a lawyer, so I'm assuming you had to study university for four to six years, something like that. A lot, a lot of time, a lot of energy involved with that. Most people, if they do that, because they put in the four to six years time and energy and money and all of this, and then they start the job and they realize, actually, I don't like this. They will fight more to keep it <laughs> than they will to leave because of how much they've invested already in it. And it's just crazy to think that. People will also do it in relationships. Oh, but you know, why don't you just leave him? Well, but we've been together for 10 years and we've already done so much together and we have kids together, mm. but you know, but you're not happy. But they'll look at how much has been invested and use it as a reason why they need to stay instead of actually fighting for themselves and the cost loss fallacy. I think a lot of people stay in unfulfilling lives and jobs and careers and everything because of how much they've already invested into it instead of actually just looking at and going, yeah. And that chapter is just now closed. And what's next? Mm-hmm. So I love that you kind of fell into it. And, and by the sounds of it, you fell into your transition in a very interesting way. So I, I read that you birthed your business out of actually burning out. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So it was and said trip to Rwanda, which was so random at the time. <laughs> I sort of really know how we ended up there, but um I had gone over with a Nick on this charitable expedition and had an incredible transformative life-changing, I think it was about four or five weeks. 
um, and not only brought back all those revelations about the distinction between success and happiness and being busy versus having direction. Like I think often I realized I was busy, but not fit, not going anywhere, just busy on the spot for the sake of it. But I also brought back a really nasty gut parasite, which is pretty common when you're sort of out in really remote communities. And it wasn't an acute one. I didn't get really sick straight away. So I didn't really notice that anything was happening, but it slowly started to wreak havoc on my digestion, my appetite. I wasn't really eating enough and being one of those A-type, like, just throw yourself into work. You'll, you'll, you'll be right. Like, didn't wellness wasn't really a word I kind of indulged back then. I just kept going for three or four months. I lost 15 kilos. I'm already a small shape, so I didn't really have 15 kilos to lose. And I ended up just passing out at work from adrenal fatigue. So it was only through kind of the dramatic removal of my ability to be productive at all and realizing, oh my God, do I even have value when I can't work? Who am I when I'm not being busy or when I'm not a lawyer? What is wellness? What is energy? All that kind of stuff. Um, that I also had to like cut out a lot of things. So I couldn't drink alcohol, couldn't have gluten, anything inflammatory. I had to just go on a really strict, clean diet to kind of let my body recover. I couldn't drink coffee. And we discovered matcha because it's caffeinated, but a lot more gentle on a compromised adrenal system and immune system. And just happened to stumble on a massive gap in the market that I think people attribute too much of their journey to luck. I think it's easy to sort of self-deprecate and say it was just lucky, but it really was very lucky timing for us. It was the time where people knew what it was. The Kardashians were drinking it. There were a million matcha ambassadors out there, but there was no brand. It was just like sugar. And we just kind of stepped in looking for a source for ourselves that other people happened to want as well. <laughs> it was very lucky timing. So, so walk me through the transition of that. So you were working corporate career and next minute you've got this thriving business you guys exited from and everything. Did you, did you quit your job to just go full in with this? Or can you tell us about the bit of the transition here? Cause I know a lot of people who listen to this are in that transition. And I think looking back on my whole journey, I started my first business at 21. I quit my job at 23. I've never gone back. And that time quitting was extremely not hard challenging mm -hmm. like on my identity who am i now what is life about scary fear am i gonna be able to do this like leaving that 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 proper week to week pay to create income on my own like can i it was very conflicting for like six to eight months it was super challenging mm. and sometimes people also think that they have to actually quit their current job to start a business uh, and I'll always sort of say to people, start as a side hustle until it's until you can sort of swing from one branch to the next. But how did you do it? How did you transition out of the career into that? And talk me through what was actually going through your mind. Very, very similar to you. And I, I love that reminder that it doesn't have to be all or nothing straight away. Like you can, I think it always looks like an overnight decision that becomes an overnight success. But really at the time, it's so many micro decisions, so much angst, so much back and forward and often over a really protracted amount of time, which is definitely how it was for us. So um, I definitely went through what you mentioned before about the cost loss fallacy. I absolutely went through a whole like, well, this is going really well, but I've invested my entire life and time and identity and, and 
you know, 10 years into becoming this lawyer and I'm doing really well at that as well. It wasn't like I hated it or it wasn't going well. I had amazing opportunities lined up. I, I had was actually just about to start an associateship with the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. Like I'd applied six years before. There were all these markers that I had yet also to kind of uncover and, and discover about what I could do in that role. And it was very hard not to think I've got to stay to make that worth it. So I, I love that you brought that up because I think that's a huge thing that goes through your mind when you have competing opportunities. But now I've kind of come and during that time learned to not think of anything as a waste. You're never really abandoning what you've invested. You're just rechanneling it towards something different. If you learn something, it's mm-hmm. never a waste. You can always transfer some lessons and some skills. Um, so I, I kind of was able to rechannel that, the concept of wasting time over a lot of self-work <laughs> but um yeah I gave myself the time so we started it as a side hustle and it was very much we found a beautiful tea farm that ticked boxes that no other supplier did it was affordable but it was organic it was J- Japanese not Chinese it was had all the right certifications we ordered in bulk it turned up it was two million serves too many for us to use alone so we thought we have to sell some and let's just put a few in bags. And now I really take that approach all the time. Like you don't need to sell a hundred bags to the first day. You just need to sell one or two or 10. And if you can sell 10, you can sell 20. If you can sell 20, you can sell a hundred and you'll deal with the selling thousands and 10,000s later. Like you don't have to jump straight to the end. So we started really small. We sold out. We scrambled to get to each new level, but there wasn't actually enough work for a full-time person until six months in. So I did keep a foot in both doors. And I think when you're making a huge, overwhelming, scary decision, the best thing you can do is minimize the risk as much as you can, like minimize the fear. So giving yourself time to, the more time I spent in my job, the more capital I could save. The more time I spent in my job, the more I gave the business a chance to be bigger. So I was jumping to something that had proven itself versus jumping to the complete unknown the more I gave us a chance to like test the market. Was it going to be a two-month fad or six months later, was it going to be just at the beginning of its journey? And we waited until we got our biggest purchase order ever had come through from Urban Outfitters across the States off the back of Instagram, which at the time had no algorithm. It was just this beautiful, unfiltered place <laughs> where you could reach everyone and every everywhere um, by just doing a, you know, a, quite a structured formula at the time and they ordered enough bags that were impossible to pack we didn't have a packer at that time we couldn't get a manufacturer quickly enough for their deadline the only way to do to fulfill the contract was for one of us to go full-time and just pack it like by hand and so I really waited as much as everyone's like it was such a scary decision you made such a big leap of faith I actually waited until it was impossible to do both. I gave myself the longest lead time Mm. and waited until I couldn't say yes to both, but absolutely killed myself right up until the last minute. Um, And then I thought it came down to what is the once in a lifetime opportunity? And what is the thing that like, I always think now of Sarah in 10 years or 20 years, what will I regret more? And even if the exact opportunities I had in law wouldn't be there necessarily, Law as an industry, not going anywhere, ever. You'll always need lawyers. I'll always have my degree. 
I can always come back. I won't come back at the same level, but I might be like a few years behind or a few months. But to be the first to market matcha in this way where everyone wants it and they're coming to us already, the demand is already there. All we have to do is say yes. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it might last three months and it might last 12 months and it might last three minutes. But I think I'll kick myself if I don't just see what happens. And it just came down to the balancing regret, really, ba- balancing future regrets. And so I sort of left, I think maybe seven days later, I'd had the conversation. I took 12 months off, which is how most people test a departure from a law firm. Um, but I, I knew I probably wouldn't go back if it went well enough. And that was like eight years ago. It's wild. I love one thing you just said. You said you balance the future regrets. See, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people will look at what's the vision I want for my life, and they and they create this amazing vision. They they watch the law of attraction. They watch the secret, yeah. and they create their future. Mm. And but by the sounds of it, what you did, you created two futures, which is exactly what I do. The future of well, what's the best case scenario if all of this happens? And also, what's the what's the, what's going to happen if I don't do anything? And if we can create two visions, we're, we're going to see a pleasure and we're going to see a pain. And that, I think, is one of the most powerful things. Nearly every single successful person I've talked to, they've done something very similar. Like, they weigh up. Well, what's going to happen if it really works? Also, what's going to happen if I do nothing? Mm. As soon as that visualization happens, it's like, okay, I'm going to do something about it because usually it's far worse than the current situation we're in right now. But because we never often look to that way, that's why people stay down the lane of just doing what's easy, what's comfortable. Through through this whole process, what was the biggest challenge you guys faced scaling this, growing it? Yeah, I think... Um, I think because we did it so gradually... Our naivety at the time actually meant that fear, it was a ma- like a massive uncertainties, massive, there was a coarse fear about things going wrong, fear of being judged, fear of all those things. But because it was fear about very small steps, I could never have made that jump all in one go. So fear was a, a challenge, but it wasn't the biggest one. And the momentum was so fast, we just happened to hit a market, This won't, and this won't be the case for everyone, but... The demand and momentum was so quick that we actually didn't really have time either to sit in, oh, do we do it? Don't we do it? Oh my God, what could go wrong? Like we just had to do it. So that was very good for someone who's new to an industry and who could otherwise just rest in self-doubt and get crippled by it. We just had no choice for the first year. I think the bigger challenge was actually later down the track, like a lot of people focus on the, when did you leave your job, blah, blah, blah. But while there's momentum, that's a lot less scary because you can see that the market's carrying you. You can see that you're getting sales and you can see that there's demand that's growing. What got hard was when we'd let, I'd left my job. And so two of us suddenly had, we'd always had, had, we'd always had a good balance of, I had a stable income. Nick had had a very variable but he could increase his income. Like we kind of had a good balance between someone in a full-time job and someone who was working for themselves. Suddenly we were both thrown into that pool. So the uncertainty was quite high. The ability to borrow money, all of those things had changed really quickly. But what really struck was after it slowed down and we had gone from being the only person in the market really to suddenly the barriers to entry are quite low. 
Within about a year, we started to have competitors. We had a beautiful year of a head start and then suddenly the market was flooded. Everyone caught up with the idea that Matcha was going really well. There were like everyone from your big players like Blackmores and T2 bringing out their own equivalent and then other small startups replicating kind of what we'd done. And it became really difficult. We had to, our whole message had just been, what is Matcha? Why is it great? You should buy it. And suddenly it became, what is Matcha? Why is it great? Why is ours better than everyone else's? And why you should buy ours, which was very different. So we kind of had a really one-dimensional focus for the first year. And then suddenly we had to have a a million-dimensional focus. It was like we had competitors. We had to work really hard for customers. We had to look at retention. We couldn't just wing it anymore. You couldn't just chuck matcha in bags and sell it and it would just fly off the shelves. We actually have to have some strategy. And I think there's something so beautiful about the whole winging it phase of a startup. And when it's it's when the, the honeymoon period ends and you're like, I've got to work hard now. Like I've got to engage with my books. I didn't read a report for the first year because I didn't need to. I was just like, wee, entrepreneur land. Like all I need to do is like creative photo shoots and assets and make recipes. I got to do all the fun stuff. The biggest challenge was transitioning to like, this is a proper business. I now take my full wage from this business. I need to make it have longevity. Like you don't think about longevity when you first start. So suddenly it's like, okay, I never had a business plan. I probably need one now. I never had, you know, reporting like it was two of, it was my, my husband and I packing in our jocks in a friend's commercial kitchen. You know, suddenly we're like, we probably need packers. We maybe need staff, like systems, you know, it's when you have to go legit. That's when it kind of gets scary because that's when the risks are higher. Like the stakes are a lot higher. The investments are bigger. Like suddenly you can't just pack bags on demand and you don't have to pay anyone because you're packing it, suddenly you have to order 20,000 bags at once. And then if you're packing 20,000 bags, you have to buy 20,000 bags. And then if you have to buy 20,000 bags, you have to buy 20,000 bags worth of stock from the tea farm at once. And you have to pay the shipping on that and the customs. Like there's, It's just, I think a lot of people think the start is the scariest. I actually found it the sort of two to three year mark when it all just got really serious. Wow. So how how did you approach because this is a good thing with like competition in the market um one thing i've learned from mentors to he he drew the example of bunnings and masters do you remember masters yeah yeah for like a hot minute that was the thing for a, for for a hot minute right <laughs> so he he used the perfect example of here here we got bunnings which is like a staple australian icon right and then masters come along and go, well, we're going to do the exact same thing, but just try to do it better. And they tried to compete on prices, but then they didn't realize that Bunnings have a, will beat anything by 10%. Mm. And they quickly just went completely out of business. And he draws us as the example to, instead of looking to compete with another company, look for how can you create yours so it's so unique where we're not even in the same conversation. Mm. It's like, we are this. Like Apple, I wouldn't, think apple was out there trying to go how can we compete with um galaxy or whatever i think that it's like we're apple Mm. and we're the best like (laughs) how did you view how how did you view the differentiating if that word was correct differentiating um your company from the rest like when it decided to get competitive Mm. what was your angle on going how do we stand out from the market how do we how do we get our market share here 
I love that question because it really wasn't one we had to ask at the start. And I think a lot of businesses start needing to ask that because the industry is it's very rare that you don't have any competitors when you begin. So yeah. we definitely got away for a long time with never having to engage with that, even though normally a USP is like the first thing you have to think about. But when it did start to get a little bit more saturated, actually what did happen is, and I think this happens even on a personal level to a lot of us, where you do try and just mimic and match and be and do the same or do it a little bit cheaper or do it a little bit like over deliver. Like I, I even find now when I'm doing a speaking gig, I'm like, oh God, maybe I should do more of like, if I hear someone else's keynote, I'm like, oh, the comparison trap is like, I should do more of that. Like, cause that's working well for her. Or you, you get so distracted by the shiny things of what everyone else is doing, which is what masters did. They're like, we need to do that exact thing and then change it a tiny bit. And we definitely got distracted by that. I was like, oh my God, the minute that T2 came out with a matcher, I just was like, we are not, we're going to die. Like we are shutting down. I might as I almost closed the doors preemptively because I was like, we cannot compete with a behemoth like T2 that had just got acquired by, I think it was, um, not PZ Cousins, but one of the big conglomerates had just acquired them. So they had Unilever, they had these massive resources behind them. And we're this tiny couple in a garage who's, you know, barely keeping up. And so I did have that crisis of confidence of like, well, we can't be cheaper because we don't have the buying power. So we've lost the game already. Like I kind of thought that the price was the only thing we were competing on. And then, and same Blackmores came out with it. And I was like, oh my God, the Blackmores matter is like $4 and ours was $24.95. Like there's no, we're dead. Like there are going to be no customers. And it was actually the customers that kind of helped me with this whole process, realizing people who buy vitamins or supplements or powdered supplements from Blackmores are not the people who also buy from a small business in a boutique health food store with a really high price per gram with organic certification that has all the extra checks and balances. Like they're different consumers. So exactly what you said, it took a long time, but I had to come back to just believing in the fact that we are not for everyone. No one is for everyone. No one's product is for everyone. You don't want to be for everyone because any kind of for no one. But you you have the people you are for and you stick to them because they're not the same. They're, people who shop in a supermarket for supplements are totally different consumers to people who go to a boutique store and buy online or buy in a, in a health food store. The, their expectations on price are so different, but they want more from the product. They want more certifications. They want more community engagement. They don't want that from Blackmores and they don't expect it from Blackmores or T2. So suddenly I realized like we're not even, we're not almost not even selling the same thing. We're selling like a daily use superfood and they're selling like a really disposable tea that you use every day. Like they're totally different things and it takes a lot of confidence work for you to be okay with that and stick to it. But when we tried to be everyone else, we lost, we lost vision. We tried to release too many flavors. We tried to do matcha everything because suddenly T2 were doing different flavors of matcha. They were doing merch. They were doing frothers. And I tried to do all of that. And we lost focus on just like our customers just want the plain matcha. They just want organic matcha in a bag. That's all they want. And I reckon it took about six to 12 months to come back to just focus on what you're good at. And everything was fine. And we outlived their matcha range. They stopped selling it because it just wasn't a big thing for them compared to their other teas. And I just thought, oh my, I nearly self-selected myself out of it, preempting that something would happen that didn't happen. But it was a big lesson. 
What's up, Dream Nation? Have you ever wondered how far ahead your life would have already been if you had got access to this type of content at a younger age? Look, this is why I need your help. I'm trying to build the number one personal development platform out there to teach you guys the tips, tricks, and attitude of what it takes to live your dream life and to bring the type of education that we all wish we had in school. This show only grows by word of mouth and new subscribers, so it would mean the world to me if you could smash that subscribe button right now Leave us a five-star written review or drop a comment below and share this episode with a friend. I would be forever grateful. All right, now let's get back into this episode. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, I, I heard a story that um, Woolworths, one of their strategies they wanted to do to compete with Coles was they actually tried to upscale the look of Woolworths and they changed the front of it and they made it look fancier and, and all of this stuff and they like shine all this stuff, right? Where Coles is just ugly and red and white, <laughs> and what they and what they realized was they took a decline in sales because people were starting to actually look at it and they would perceive that the grocery store was more premium than what it was. Mm. But the people who shop at Woolworths and Coles are just everyday people, and because there is a market for everything. So I love what you guys do, and you focus on the premium side. So I'm thinking right here, like I would buy your product because I want to amplify my health. Mm. Where the people that are probably walking through the stores and buy their supplements from Coles, they don't really, this is super generalized, they don't really have a full idea about all the capacities and they get, well, this is, I've heard about this on the news, it's going to be good for you, I'll just get it. Mm. And it's a totally different uh, buyers. Um, Alex Famosi talks about that as well, as well, just like pricing things for the right person. Um, so you've got a thriving podcast as well. You've interviewed amazing people about happiness, success, fulfillment in life. And I'm curious to know, what's the most bizarre thing you've heard about or talked about when it comes to living a fulfilled life? Oh, that's a good one. I think my favorite thing about having an angle on a show that isn't industry specific or that isn't just business or just like one particular vein of interest is that you get to just ask lots of random people with lots of random interests about why they're interested in that thing. And I love the idea and my my whole sort of premise underlying CCA is that what we just spoke about, the fact that we all think that everyone's the same and we should all have the same interests and we should all have the same strengths and weaknesses, but the world just wouldn't work if we all like the same stuff. If everyone was good at business, no one would do jobs and then businesses couldn't survive because no one would be able to supply them because there'd be no companies that have employees. Like we're not all supposed to do the same life path, but I think we spend a lot of our life thinking that we should and not just listening to what you're good at and what you're best at. So I think one of my favorite and one of the weirdest manifestations of passion and joy is uh, Dr. Richard Harris, who's the Thai cave rescue diver. He's like definitely my favorite episode ever. He's Australian of the year 2019. And his day job is as an anaesthetist. So in a hospital, putting people to sleep, like very medical, had a very long period of study to get there, lots of specialization. And his hobby, which from which he derives a lot of joy, has absolutely nothing to do with it. He's a technical cave diver. And there's no like qualification. Like there are qualifications and stuff, but he doesn't do it as a job. It's literally just for fun. He spends enormous amounts of money on his holidays 
going to remote places to dive downwards and across. So in my mind, the idea of diving into an area where I can't immediately surface, I can't see through the water, my chest and my back are both touching tunnels, like that is hell. I would actually pay like organs of mine to avoid that scenario. For him, he pays to go and spend his holidays doing that. Like he he loves it so much. It's his absolute passion. And he could easily be dissuaded from doing that because it doesn't add to his vocation. It doesn't make him a better doctor. It doesn't, you know, earn him money, like all of those things. But his combination of joy is that job and that hobby. And then when the 13 boys got stuck in the Thai cave, the Navy SEALs couldn't get them out. The um, world, the Thai Navy SEALs couldn't get them out. The worldwide Navy SEALs couldn't get them out because their type of diving is different to technical cave diving. But the only person in the world, you can see how excited I am, my body language, the only person in the universe, the entire universe who could do the dive, which there were only, I think, five men who could do this technical downwards and sideways dive that was like five hours in, five hours out, coffee-colored water. They had to be able to sedate the children at the other end. So the only person who could do the dive and anesthetize them was him. So talk about like your unique set of skills. Somebody in the world needs that. So don't try and change it for other people because someone out there wants exactly what you have. That episode to me is like, he's the example. Don't give up on your weird combination of things you love because one day it will save someone's life in a way that no government could do it. No rescue organization could do it. It was just this rando dad in Adelaide who got a call because someone at the other end was like, I know a guy who can do both. What the hell? That is freaking wild. It's my favorite story in the world. I don't even visualize. I'm going to look him up. Um, that's that's freaking crazy. So your, your show is called Seize the Yay. So tell, tell me about that. What is what is Seize the Yay mean to you? So it stems from Seize the Day, the whole carpe diem motto of make the most of every opportunity in your life, which on its face I think is a wonderful principle. Just make the most of every day, get up and have a gung-ho attitude. I was adopted from an orphanage in South Korea when I was younger, and I think that's been extra well honed in me because I have this great sense of appreciation of like it could have been different. I could have grown up in what was a third world country at the time. I got to grow up in an extremely privileged, beautiful, loving, supportive family in the best country in the world, but it could have been different. So that whole carpe diem has made me probably a bit keen, um, a bit keen to say yes to everything ever. Like I've always been that keen bean that did a million extracurricular activities, but also loved school and academics. And I just love doing all the different things. Like my brain inside it would be similar to yours. People would just be like, what the fuck is this mess? Like, uh. but I think the, the potential downside to having too much of a yes attitude is that you can end up just saying yes to stuff like because you should, like as we started with at the beginning, the momentum of like this is a sensible thing to do or I'm so grateful to have this opportunity, how could I say no to it, can sometimes mean that you're actually not very discerning because you're just saying yes to everything and then you end up doing a job that's great because someone else, it's their dream job, so how could I be so ungrateful to say no to it? Or if you've ticking enough boxes you kind of don't ask if you're happy or if it's the best suited job to you because you're just like this is a good job 
Um, I'm really lucky to have it. I think sometimes, not that you can ever be over grateful, but it can just change your decisions sometimes in a way that doesn't lead you to investigate whether you could serve the world better in a different role or you could, you know, I think people assume they're not musicians, but it's like, if you've never done music, how do you know that? Or I'm not a sports person, but they've Mm. never tried. It's like, if you've tried and you've figured it out, great. But if you've never tried, how do you even know that? You're just doing the thing you're doing because that's the thing you thought you should do. So to me, like switching it to seize the yay was a representation of literally how my philosophy changed. It went from seize the day, but without any direction, just say yes to everything. Make the most of every day, but just say yes to all the things you can and fit them all in. And then I was like, maybe there can be another criteria, which is that follow the the joy, the things that really bring you joy. And usually that involves some kind of crossover with what you're good at as well. Follow the things that make you forget what time it is. Follow the things that make you forget about money. And when I talk about like money not equaling happiness, I'm really at pains to emphasize. I don't mean it doesn't matter. I think that's a really shallow, not shallow, but like a, a, an incomplete statement because it it matters. Of course it matters. It removes so many barriers and obstacles and stress and opens up doors and gives you opportunities. Like, of course you need money, but it's just, it comes first too often. It It's the first and only criteria for a lot of people. Seize the yay is just like, you can't live a life without something that makes you say yay in a childlike way that makes you just like, yay, like I'm so excited. And it doesn't have to be your job. It can be a hobby. You can hate your job. But the reality is we all have bills. You have to go and pay your bills. But find something else in your life and your spare time that makes you so joyful that we're not here to just work and die. Like that's just not the point of our purpose on this earth. So yay just brings back that whole Joy has a big role in the time you spend here and don't let that pass you by because what a shame. You've, so listen to your story. So I didn't know about that. So you're born in Orphage in Korea. You've had this almost burned out, super crazy. And I'm sure you've probably got many other stories of things that have happened in your life that a lot of other people, if it had happened to them, they could use it as a reason as to why they can't go after the things they want. And I'm curious to know, how do you view, like, how are you different from other people who have also gone through hardship in their life or grown up where they could look and be like, well, I grew up in an orphanage. I didn't get the same as other people. You're looking at it from one perspective Mm -hmm. and a lot of people look at it from a different perspective. How is your view of thinking and looking at, I guess, what some people could call as setbacks Mm -hmm. in their life different to how others may view theirs? I think the biggest difference is genuinely having an amazing family. Like I, I wish I could take credit for it, but I think it got, it dates back to well before I could make choices over the perspective. Like it's easy to say, we all have two choices. You can see things positive and negative, but like I was so little. <laughs> I was five months old when I was adopted. I wouldn't have had the wits about me to make that kind of decision. I think it was a huge part of it was my parents framing it that way for me making it a positive story with a beautiful ending rather than a a traumatic story that could be all about abandonment it could be all about sadness and how how difficult that is and the confusion of identity rather than the uniqueness of identity and the beautiful ending that it led to and I really think it's still the, the best, even though it didn't come from like me consciously, it comes from me to choose to keep seeing it that way. But I definitely inherited that from amazing guidance. 
But I think the message is the same, that in most situations, there are multiple ways you can look at things. There's usually a pretty negative way and a pretty positive way. Like you can really, within a spectrum of what a fact about what happened, we really can put a lens on those things and choose which way we want to see them. And I think that has taught me growing up around that kind of choice around perception has encouraged me to do that in everything. If anything bad happens, of course, you honor the challenge, you honor sadness, you honor grief, and you don't necessarily need to be a stoic Aussie who never shows emotions about anything. Some things are really shitty. But in the aftermath of most of those things, you can choose to let it really define you in a bad way, or you can make it like a catalyst for something good. And so I think I do just try to keep that going in my life. Like if there's a challenge and a setback, sit with it, you deal with it, and then you think, what's the lesson? Or one of the quotes, I'm a love, big lover of quotes, and one of the quotes I always think about is, if you have some kind of bad luck, I always think, what is the worst luck that this bad luck saved you from? So like if we would have, that's really like basic bitch example, but like if you had a small bingle in your car, like a tiny little tiff and like no one wants to have a car accident, but you just bang into the car in front of you. I just kind of think, okay, that's really, no one needs that in their day. It's not a great start to the day, but like if there was a car accident in your cards for this week and that's the one you had, like grateful, could have been way worse. I think it could always be worse. And that helps me move on from it more quickly than to just sit in what a shit day. Like why me? Like this is so awful. I've got to pay my insurance and my excess. Like sure, all those things happen, but they've already happened by then. So you can't change that. You can give yourself a really miserable day or you can think, thank God I, I came out unscathed. And I think it's just in that moment, you've got, you've got a lens choice and you just choose the one that serves you better. Yeah. My mentor says, uh, he, he taught us sort of a long time ago, actually, and I've really lived my life from this moment since like it. And he says, every, every single result we have in our life comes down to, um, to the story in which we attach to an event that happened in our life at some point. Yes. And he's like, every single, every single thing that's happening in your life is an event. Events happen. You get in a car crash. You know, you can you can be broken up with. You can even crazy like you lose a partner. Who know, who knows? Like events happen. Mm. That's not the problem. What what the problem is is then someone comes along. Us is then we attach a story to the event, and an event plus a story equals a problem. And so what he said to me is like he goes with everything that happens in life, you just got to look at it as it just is. Like looking at it as it objectively and then realize that which what story what meaning are you actually attaching to this and he's super funny when he explains some stories but like there's like one of the stories he was telling me he's like he's his youngest son calls him up one day and said hey dad i've just had a car accident hey, can you come help me he's like okay are you all right he's like yeah yeah but the car's not he's like, okay so he rocks up to the place and he crashed his car right into a tree about five meters from a cliff so the tree stopped him from probably dying. And David rocks up and all he said to him was, nice parking job. <laughs> it's like, he's like, good, good job. Well done. And, and what was even funnier about this though, he said, he goes, where were you, where were you going? He said, I was going to work. And he says, are you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm okay. He goes, good, then go to work. And he's like, but, but I just had an accident. He's like, yeah, but you said you're fine. Just go to work. He's like, don't make up a story about it. He's like, and then he, he said, he's like, you didn't nearly die. He's like, you didn't like, don't, he's like, you just, crash your car in a tree don't make up story go go on with your day 
That's it. Yeah, wow. And, and it's just as simple as that because so many people can look at that and be like, oh my God, I nearly died. No, you didn't. You hit, you hit a tree. Like, you're okay. Yeah. Don't make it more than what it actually was. And so the philosophy is, event happens, no story equals no problem. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things I just look at in my life. Like, shit's just always happening. You can never really control the things that are happening in our life. Like, things just always happen to us. Mm -hmm. But we can always control the meaning which we give it. I love that. It's a it's a fun one. Um, your your opinion, what actually creates happiness? Such a deep one. <laughs> I think it's so cliche, but I think the more I've thought about this, applied it, observed people around me who either seem to have it or don't have it, I really think that it's something about, I don't know how to say it articulately, but something about the difference between treating happiness as this place where you're going to arrive at and then you've got the happiness and then you chill and then everything's like you don't have to try anymore and then happiness being like this ongoing journey. It's like the whole journey versus destination thing and I know it's so corny that Happiness is not a destination, it's a journey. I think genuinely it's true. The people who are like, I'll be happy when I get this car, I get this promotion, when I, anything, when you ascribe happiness to this place that you'll arrive at that's static, I think that's when you don't feel happy because you're either not there yet, in which case you're focusing on the lack of, or you're there and then you've got nothing to strive for. That whole destination-based approach to life it just doesn't really, you're never fulfilled because either you're there and you have to, you just go to the next big thing or you're not there and then you're unhappy about where you're not. I think it's the people who can find it in this, the, the routine, the journey, the everyday small things. And it's, again, sounds so cliche, like it's in the little things, but it is. I really think the people who don't need to get to happiness, the people who just let it be their lifestyle and their everyday, that's when you really feel happiness because you're not always trying to make it somewhere and mm. I think the example that's helped me kind of understand that as a concept is Hollywood and as and this is a mass generalization but like they generally Hollywood stars have more money they can do things with more choice more freedom more flexibility like of course everyone it's relative they, everyone has stresses but they've pretty much achieved every marker of success and fulfillment that you could possibly have and they're bored there are more drugs in those circles there are more like people have overdoses when the outside of their life looks like the dream and it's because so often it's like well what do you do when you've got everything there's nothing to strive for there's no journey left it's just kind of like I got all the things tick and then like what else is there how do I feel something whereas it's the ones who kind of keep working and have really private family lives and still have metrics other than just the stuff they've got that are treating happiness as this evolving process that like kind of have a better head on their shoulders. Like there is no better example that money doesn't equal happiness all by itself than looking at like really rich, famous people because they're generally not mm. the most happy people you see in society. And that really helped me. I was like, I don't want all those things necessarily. Like, I like the idea of doing well and providing for my family and maximizing my potential but just to get there for the sake of it I think like you know when people are focused so focused on retirement it's like and then they get there and they're like what do I do now like I don't know what to do with my 
there's a huge transition often where people hate it because they're like, I'm not busy. I have no meaning. I have no purpose in life. Whereas I'm not like working to retire. I think I'll always work, even if it's not for pay. I just think I'll always have something that I do because though because activity makes me happy and meaning makes me happy. It's not like let's get to the end so I can just sit on my butt, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that also determines a lot of happiness or unhappiness in our life is the person we decide to do life with, like our intimate partner, 100%. our relationship. You you and your husband, you've created massive success together. You guys are both serial entrepreneurs. You do so much. I'm curious to know, is there a secret that you guys have to balance healthy relationships and success simultaneously? Well, we've been together 14 years and we've been in business together for, for 10. And I think we've learnt an enormous amount about boundaries and communication and partnerships friendships in that time and I think the biggest takeaway would probably be firstly the thing that makes us work the best I think in our personal life and in work is that we're so different in the areas that are complementary to the other person so my strengths are generally in areas where they're not his strengths and vice versa and being able to identify those and defer to those and respect each other, like what you can learn from each other. Like, I love that we kind of fill each other's gaps. I think the diversity in our coupling makes it so strong because we kind of together cover all bases, but we're separately, you know, if we were, when I look at us as individuals, we both operate at like extreme ends of different spectrums and we kind of bring each other back into the middle a little bit in a really nice way. And I think that's similar and that's taught me with anyone that I work with that I used to be someone who would look for a cultural fit. I'd want people who are fluffy and yay like me and you tend to kind of go towards what mimics you because that's familiar and that's comfortable and you get along really well. But like we don't need lots of me in the company. Otherwise, like why would I bother hiring someone else if it's just another me? You need people who fill your gaps and who are different to you and, and same in your friendships. You don't need people who will just think the exact same thing as you. You need a real mix of backgrounds and opinions and strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's one thing we have, that has kept us so strong is that we keep each other in check in different areas of strength and we learn from each other constantly in those different areas. Um, and we kind of didn't work so well in business when we would both try and do the same roles because you'd just always be like, well, who's the boss here? Like there's just no tiebreaker. It's just the two of you saying, I am, I think this, and the other one's like, I think this. Dividing and conquering based on who's better at stuff or who likes certain areas. I like finances. He hates them. I like doing budgets. He hates them. Whereas he likes doing financial reports. I hate them. So like we just work out our whole life based on different people's strengths and weaknesses and then communicate about it as well. So no one's guessing like, did you take that over because you think I'm bad at this or because you know I don't like it? Like communicating about your expectations and the reasoning behind the decisions you make also means there's not a lot of room for misunderstanding, which I think is where most disputes happen. So to be fair, that's taken us 14 years to figure out, but we're, we're getting pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a ball game. Like me and my partner have gone into business together um, this year. We've started a podcast agency together with a couple other business partners. And 
we're playing that role as well. And because I've got years of experience in business, so I I find it easy sometimes to be like, no, I know what's best. Yeah. Because of my experience. Yeah. And then I have to continually be like, hang on, just shut up for a second. Because <laughs> sometimes like, actually, that's a great idea. We should do that. Because like, we're all just making up shit as we go along anyway. Totally. So more experience of making up shit as we go along. Um, but we're, we're playing with that as well. But I think definitely, yeah, like when you're not in the department, like if, you, if, if you're crossing over, that's that's the only time where I agree with we've been like, what the hell? And now we're sort of catching each other going like, get out of here. I'm focused on this. Yeah, this is my area. You know? this, <laughs> this is my playground here, right? Um, but it's funny because we're both quite similar. We're both like, we want to do everything, can be here and help. And um, But it's definitely a, you know, learning how to, how to, do that successfully there and also the relationship for sure sarah this has been really fun really insightful um and a very a very great conversation where can everybody find everything you're doing on social media check out your podcast you've got a book you've got everything going on where can everybody find you oh gosh i think probably the easiest place is spoonful of sarah on instagram because everything else is linked from there (laughs) there's like a million places you can find me i live on the internet but that's like you can everything else is connected to there Love it. Love it. To wrap this up, I have a final question. If you were to go back to your 18-year-old self and give her 30 seconds of advice, what would it be? Stop plucking your eyebrows. That would be number one. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I think it would just be trust the process. Like 18-year-old me was very much that default. My default is certainty loving. My default is like, know where you're going, aim for it, know the ending, have a plan, have a 50-year plan. Like, look, I thought I was going to be a lawyer at that age. So I was like, I know where I know where partnership is. I know how many years that takes. I know where, how long it takes to be a judge. Like, I just thought I had this plan. And I think I would just say, like, it's not going to work out how you think it is. It's going to work out way better. But just don't double guess that. Like, every chapter is leading you to something. It's probably not where you think you're meant to go, but just embrace each bit and trust that it'll all work out. 